Today I'll be reading and preaching um, the whole chapter of Acts chapter 22. Hear now the very word of God. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner and law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed to you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple And I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who kill him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying, that he should be examined by flogging 
to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizen for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also very was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the councils to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have the great privilege of hearing the Apostle Paul's proclamation of his meeting and encountering your Son, Jesus Christ. Once again, Father, we are tremendously indebted eternally to the greatness of your love and mercy to us that we would hear and believe. We are eternally grateful that we could be here today and again hear this proclamation of your son and to continue to be transformed into the likeness of him. Father, this miracle is beyond our understanding, but we pray by your proclamation and your promises, by your word of truth, that it would be so this day as we go through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Just as a reminder that it is my goal to finish up Acts before we get into the Advent season, so to do that we'll have to do a chapter a week, and this is unusual for me because I don't usually try to take off of this big of a chunk uh, one time, and, and, and in many respects, if it wasn't for the fact of what we've already gone through in Acts and some of the preparatorial work that we've had to go into this section of Acts, um, it would probably not do it justice to try to do so. But since Paul has been arrested, many of these stories have a repetition and a similar theme, and I think we can highlight those particular themes and then also the distinctions from them from one account to another because Paul is being used, obviously, to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to different audiences all the way to the end of Acts. And so I think it is possible for us to go through to say and, and look at that. And, and in some respects, the sermon that I did last Sunday was kind of the groundwork in preparation for all of these remaining chapters. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that sermon, it would be good to go back because the particular points and principles that I pointed out there are the continuing themes throughout. 
And just as a quick recap, that I talked about that there was one, the promises of suffering that Paul was given. And in fact, in his encounter with Jesus Christ that was recorded earlier by Luke, that was the thing that Jesus told Ananias, is that he will suffer for my name's sake. I'm about to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And I think I made a fairly large case yesterday that that wasn't just an extraordinary particular calling that Paul had, like many other extraordinary things that he did have, but it was an ordinary calling that he had that was maybe expounded upon a a bit more because of his apostle role. He was going to suffer maybe in greater ways than some would, but that that was a particular example in calling that we see in the teachings of Jesus and of Paul and of Peter, that this is the calling of all Christians. And then secondly, that the response of this call of ministry will be faced with lies and confusion. That that is something that we can pretty much expect, that if we are doing our job, as Paul was doing his appointed call, he was faced with the accusations of things, just as Jesus was faced with, that were false accusations. Paul, again, is being given false accusations, and we too will hear that because... Satan is the deceiver. And so it's going to be the primary characteristic of the response that when we are about the ministry work, whether it's in our own discipleship work and if it's in our own seeking to being faithful to God or our own families or our own particular occupations or ministries, that we are going to be faced with lies and confusion. And then lastly, we see that Paul is masterfully utilizing at the same balance in this evangelical calling the law and the proclamation of the gospel. And that is a difficult thing that we see in our society today, that typically that we will either wrongly pervert and twist the law to be some kind of burden that God did not intend for it to be, or we will assume that we can present and proclaim the gospel apart from the law of Jesus Christ. Paul continues to show in the past and in here and throughout the rest of the book of Acts how he is masterfully presenting the ministry of Jesus Christ by upholding faithfully the law and the proclamation of the gospel of peace. So here in this particular passage, we see that, and it's interesting, if you just rewind just a little bit, if you remember that the conversation that Paul was having with the tribune, that he was highlighting a different twist of where he was from when they thought that he was the crazy Egyptian um, assassin guy. He clarified, he says, no, I'm Paul from Tarsus of no obscure city. And the reason why he's making that point that to the Romans, to the tribune, that Tarsus was a respected city because of its, it was an intellectual center. And so he was appealing to their appreciation of where he was from. And then here we see him transitioning. Now he is talking to the Jews. And so I think Luke wants us to see how Paul changes gears from whoever his audience is. Now, the temptation, I think, that any of us would, maybe because of my own cowardness, is that we would think that Paul is being maybe sly and being somewhat like a politician and trying to you know, appeal to people. I know I may have many years of... Explain that I have this uh, memory of some of uh, childhood um, dreams that I have that I had this particular response to monsters that I ran into in my dreams that I would often find myself running from 
the creature from the Blue Lagoon or whatever it was called, or a dinosaur or something. But then I would realize that I would not be able to outrun this monster. And so I thought, I will turn around and try to make friends with it. Because I was thinking that was my only hope, is to try to appeal to them and, and, and to say, how can I help you? Or, hey, you know, I like that. Or I remember, I actually think I remember one time telling one monster that I liked his shirt. And I don't know if I was bullied as a kid or what it was. that I just remember those particular dreams. Paul is not trying to save himself by how he is twist, not twisting, but turning the truth to a place of a presentation that is more acceptable to his hearers. And we know this. Paul actually explains to us in Corinthians why he does what he does and how he presents himself and how he acts towards certain people that is primarily for the presentation of the gospel. It's not to save himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you can turn there with me because I'm going to read a few of the verses there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 18 through 27, and I'm kind of going back just a step. He's actually, in that particular context, he's, he's arguing how he has waived his rights to, he's waived his rights to being supported by the church, that he's actually bivocational, and he says that I have a right to being receiving a support from you all. Secondly, he's talking about waiving his right to a wife. I have a, a right to a wife. And so he's talking about his rights and talking about who he is and, and what he could claim. And he says, then what is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. It's very important to, to see how he articulates that. That I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in every race all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I think we need to continue to highlight and to remember what Paul's primary purpose is, is to win people to the gospel. He's not just wanting to be winsome in a sense that he was pleasant to people, but he's wanting to win those to the kingdom of God. And he knows, and we know that he already said this coming into this, he anticipates when he goes to Jerusalem that he might die. They begged him not to go. 
So it's not like he's trying to hide from trouble, that he's cowering during those situations that, oh, okay, I've got a Roman tribune here. I'm going to try to buddy up with him. And I've got the Jewish um, Sanhedrin and the chief priests here. I'm going to try to buddy up to them that so he can save himself. You know, he's there so that he may save them. And he's putting his life at risk. So he's not like me as a child in my dreams, trying to just realize that if the only way I'm going to survive is that I buddy up with them, is that his purpose is is to utilize whatever is true about him. He doesn't lie. He doesn't make up stories about himself. But he's mindful. He's mindful of his audience. And he's wanting to present himself to whatever way he can so that he may be able to win them. It's actually done out of a steadfast love, primarily out of the obedience of the law of Christ, but also for their souls. He tells us that in other epistles, that he does love his brothers and their fathers that he is speaking to. How he approaches the beginning of this talk, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Where else do we hear a sermon beginning that way? In the book of Acts. Anybody remember? It was Stephen. There's actually the exact words. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear my defense. This is an amazing way to begin. What was Stephen, what was happening to Stephen at the moment that he said those words? He was about to be stoned. And he did receive his death and also his reward. Brothers and fathers, it's a multi-level meaning to beginning there. One is saying that we are connected. I am with where you have come from. I have come from. We are holding on. What you say you're holding on to, I'm actually holding on to to the fullness because I have the fulfillment of the very things that makes us brothers and fathers together. Paul is doing the same thing. He heard that sermon. And we know that he's thinking of Stephen because he will say something else again multiple times that will remind us that he is thinking about Stephen as he is presenting this. He's repeating this. So he's already told his fellow disciples that he is going to likely face his death. His fellow disciples begged him not to go. And here he is, and he's going to use the same sermon format that got Stephen killed. This is definitely not Paul trying to save himself. He is Paul being obedient to Jesus Christ in the salvation of others. And when he, they heard this, he was addressing them in, he, in the Hebrew language. We just heard in the past chapter that he was speaking in, um, he was able to speak Greek. And so that's why they were able to understand him. So he's changing gears even in his language. And they were hushed by the fact that he was speaking a Hebrew language. And then he tells them, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. And so he uses the same introduction, but with a little bit of a twist. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was trained in Jerusalem. He was, even though he has, in a moment, he will appeal to his Tarsus connection by being a citizen, a Roman citizen. Here he's appealing to the fact, I'm from around here. Now, I am also aware of that, too, because I'm 
I've been a salesman for most of my adult life. And you use what you can use, right? You know, I think in many cases, wherever you are, and one of the advantages that I've had is when I've been a salesman around here is I'm from this area. I was talking to a guy yesterday. Knox and I were making a trans- transaction on something, and the guy thought I was from California, which, not California, he thought I was from out west. He's from California, which I thought was amazing that a Californian thought that I was from out west. And I said, no, I'm, I'm from around here. And I said, it doesn't take me long. And Jennifer knows because I used to come home when I was selling trusses or timber framing, and she could tell that when I was talking to local contractors because my whole accent would change. And I would try to, it was one, I was just bringing out what was in me, but also I wouldn't want to speak the same way that I'm speaking now to you in front of the, all of these other guys that are speaking Northeast Tennessean or Southwest Virginian. They may not understand what I'm saying. <laughs> you change. And I wasn't lying. I grew up in this area, but I've had other influences that have that has maybe rounded out that accent. Paul, again, he's not lying here. He's just working with what he has. He grew up in Jerusalem. Now, what were the three things that they accused him of when they were bringing them before the tribune? Well, they were getting ready to, to kill him, but then the tribune really kind of rescued him, wanted to find out what's going on. What were the three last chapter? What was the three things that they were accusing him of? Defiling the temple? Kind of. Very similar thing that they had accused Jesus. In verse 28 of chapter 21, it says, This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. And so their accusation against him, just like the accusation against Jesus, was saying that he is speaking to the things that we cherish about who we are and where we are in this temple, in the law of God. That he is defiling it, that he is speaking down about it, he is committing blasphemies about God's people, about God's place, and God's law. Now, we know that that is the very opposite, and Paul knows it's the very opposite. And so as he is speaking to them, he is going to appeal to them to make a defense that he's not actually doing the very thing that they are accusing him of. In fact, he is actually speaking of the very fulfillment of the things that they are supposed to be holding dear. This is an interesting play that I think that is difficult for us to understand. He is presenting himself in a place that allows him to have gravitas with this particular group. Now, gravitas means, you know, it means uh, serious things. It means weight. It means um, substance, something that is respected and worthy. He is trying to present to them that what he, who he is and what he is teaching actually has weight. But the interesting thing is, is because he knows how weighty this is, it's the kind of gravitas that kills. I actually thought about using that as the title of the sermon, the gravitas that kills, that the more he makes his defense, that he is not preaching blasphemy against God's people, against God's place, and against God's law, the more he makes that case clear, it's likely to get him more killed <laughs> because he actually knows the true fulfillment of those things. And he is, he's going to try to appeal to that particular defense that he is doing what is right 
But he knows that the weight or the scale that they are using to weigh him, they can't handle the weight of that rock. That particular rock, if you can imagine, again, going back to the idea of gravitas, if you're weighing, or he's, in, he's being weighed in the balance here of whether or not he should be condemned to death. And he's trying to prove that what he, who he is and what he is preaching has such significant weight that he does not deserve to be condemned to die, that he is actually not being the one that can uh, be accused of what they're saying. But his weight that he is presenting is heavier than the scales that they are using to judge him because they're not using truly biblical law and understanding God's biblical law. And so he knows that he, as he presents that weight before them, it's going to crush that scale and it will likely kill him. So he is making a defense only out of obedience of presenting the gospel before them and only that he might be able to win them, knowing that his own life may actually be at risk in this endeavor, he says, brothers and fathers, he speaks to them in Hebrew. He talks about being brought up in Jerusalem. He talks about Gamaliel, who is a highly respected teacher who has tremendous gravitas. And he says, I was brought up in the strict manner of the law of our fathers, appealing to them. He says, I was as you all are. I'm one of you guys. I was right there with you. I persecuted the way. You think you're persecuting Christians? I persecuted them better than you did. I have the high priests and the elders can stand witness for me. I got letters from them. I had their authority to go and to punish Christians in the way. I know what you're thinking. I know how you're thinking. I have been there. But as I'm on this endeavor to do the very thing that you're doing now, I ran into Jesus. I ran into the fulfillment of the law. I ran into the one who is the giver of the law. And so he speaks to them. He transitions from this hyper winsome, I am with you kind of place. And he transitions very quickly into, I ran into Jesus. I ran into him face to face. And there's two things in which that conversation, and it is identical to what we have from Luke earlier in Acts 9, is the conversation that he had with Jesus in the questioning. He said first, he said, after Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And we've made a a pretty big point about how he was highlighting the fact that those who are of the way, those who are in the church, is they are the representation of Jesus Christ. They are Jesus Christ. Jesus was combining himself with his people and saying, when you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. When you're persecuting the least of these, you're persecuting me. But Paul says, who are you, Lord? And so as he is giving them this account, as he has given them this testimony of about running into Jesus, the first question is, and this should be the same question for us, is that we tell people who Jesus is. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus of Nazareth. 
He knew who Jesus was. He was persecuting those who was proclaiming Jesus. He was very aware. And here he had come face to face with that one. He recognized by the power and the presentation that Jesus put before him that he should be called Lord. And that particular Lord in the particular Greek is one of a recognition of the highest level of Lord. It's not just master or teacher He recognized that he had come face to face with deity. So he'd already answered the question somewhat by saying, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus clearly identified who he was as the second person of the Godhead. We see that even here, that for some reason in God's economy, that even those with them, even though they saw the light and they heard a noise, they did not understand and recognize the voice of the Lord. Now, this is highlighting a couple of different things. One, that Paul has a particular calling, an extraordinary calling. And so Paul is not only just making a defense, trying to connect with them and trying to let them know who Jesus is. He is also making a defense that he is an apostle, that he has been given specific and direct appointment by God to make the proclamations that he's making. And he's doing so very much in the same way as all the prophets. We even know that Paul not only sees himself as like Stephen, but we know that even in this particular narrative that he sees himself to be much like Isaiah. He sees himself to be much like Jesus himself, but they don't respect Jesus, but they would respect Isaiah We see here later on, and I kind of got ahead of myself by even making that point, that when he was in the temple and he fell into a trance, even that particular narrative there of how he was communicating with Jesus is very much like Isaiah being in the temple. And we get reinforcement for that thought that at the very end of Acts, Paul quotes out of Isaiah, out of Isaiah 9, where that interaction, or excuse me, Isaiah 6, where that interaction was had where... God says, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me. But then the thing that we forget is that he was sent to proclaim to people who will not hear. Paul realizes that not only does he have to put himself in a posture where he can try to win those by connecting with those, not only is he putting himself in a position where he may actually die, Paul's evangelistic calling is actually putting him in a position where he knows that his proclamation will not be received. That's not a very nice contract for evangelism, in my opinion. I don't like that. I don't like those terms. Hey, you want this job? Like, they're not going to listen. It's like, they're going to kill you, and they're not even going to believe. It's going to seem worthless, but my glory and my kingdom will further through this particular work. Paul is aware of that and still places himself at the feet of Jesus, in the service of Jesus. Even in explaining that particular narrative of encountering Jesus Christ, he says, what shall I do, Lord? He goes from highlighting in that interaction that he is identifying who Jesus is, but also that he has been given a command. And that's the same way it is for us, that we're not here just to proclaim Jesus Christ, but that he has a response required of us. Just like we have earlier in Acts, when they come to Peter and they say, what shall we do? What did they answer to Peter when they said, 
when, when, when they asked Peter, what shall we do? How did Peter respond to that? And what else? And what else? Repent and believe and be baptized. Or repent and be baptized is the actual words, but it means the same thing. Hmm? You and your household. But you missed one little part. And receive the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your household. Interesting thing here is we look back at the interaction that Luke records for us. He doesn't mention it the same way that Paul is explaining it here. He mentions, one, you see that there is the calling of suffering earlier in Acts 9. You also see that when Ananias comes to Paul, he says you're going to receive your sight and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. But here, Paul focuses more on the understanding of Hearing him, to to see the righteous one in verse 14, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That is what Ananias says in this account. We We wouldn't know this if Paul wouldn't have given this particular account. He does give this interaction once again, and he gives us more information later on. But we didn't get that from Luke, that when Ananias met with Paul to confirm the appointment of Paul, that here he is focusing on knowing the righteous one, which is pointing back to Stephen again, because that's what Stephen called Jesus. And it is also what Isaiah calls the Messiah, is the righteous one. And so we see that he is connecting himself to Stephen, he's connecting himself to Isaiah, and he's saying that I have been given an appointment to hear from the mouth of the Lord and to be a witness. I have been given a calling. This is his argument and defense for his apostolic calling of ministry. So not only is he telling them, I'm, I was just like you guys, and I ran into Jesus, It's Jesus, it's the Messiah, but I've actually been given authority by the Messiah to proclaim the truth to you. And then he says later on, and to the Gentiles. They were tracking with him. I don't know if they were agreeing with him, but they were tracking with him until he got to that part about the Gentiles. That is what finally pushed them over the edge. It's what highlights for them that they never understood the fullness of the Old Testament. They did not understand what God had been telling in the Old Testament that this would happen. They were too focused on their particular group of people and their particular place and their particular understanding of the law, not God's proclamation of the people in the place and the law. And therefore, everything broke at that particular point. And they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So his sermon ends with, proclaiming what had happened to him, that he basically is highlighting that I am much like Isaiah. I've been given a special appointment to preach to you, knowing that you're not going to hear. He even tells him that. He says, Jesus the Lord told me. 
to get out of this place the first time around because you would not receive me. But he says, but the Gentiles will receive me. Now that might have been somewhat in light of a connection that is, even though that there is no proof that he actually brought any Gentiles into the temple, we know that that is a place where they are already irate by the rumor that he brought a Gentile into the temple to say that he is actually by the same God of their fathers being given the proclamation to go and to preach to the Gentiles to bring them into the fold was more than they can handle because they did not understand what the prophets had said. And as we end this particular narrative, we see that Paul is now, his audience has changed, that the tribune is wanting to pull him aside and they're actually going to beat him with whips, the whips with the metal on the ends of the pieces of the whip. And just as they're stretching him out, Paul realizing that he has a new congregation of people to speak to, he's now focusing in on another part of his reality of who he is and he says are you going to do this to a roman citizen knowing that it is against their law very much against their law for them to beat or to punish someone without due process that even having him bound like he was was already an offense that could have gotten them in a lot of trouble if they would have killed paul or even beaten him the tribune could have actually be executed for what he had done. Paul is able to think about all of these things with all of the yelling, with all of the confusion, and with all of the lies and the accusation. He is so dead set. That's why when you, when you read that passage in Corinthians, is that he is training himself in self-control for that imperishable wreath to proclaim the gospel. So what can we learn from this? One, that it's okay to try to be somewhat winsome, not dishonest, but we need to be thinking about our particular motivations for when we are reaching out to other people. What is our purposes? Is our purposes is that we would be able to have a bigger circle of friends or that we would not look foolish or ashamed? The argument that I'm trying to make from the scriptures is that Paul realized that every step forward that he made, even in trying to connect with them, even trying to have gravitas before them, that even that particular weight that he was presenting before them would be potentially the weight that would actually be tied around his neck to kill him. That it would actually destroy what we would think would be successful ministry that the audience would completely close off their ears. Now that's a weird place for us to be, that we would at one side trying to connect with people in ministry, knowing that as we tell them the truth, and we must tell them the truth because we're bound by the truth of the law of Christ, that as we tell them the truth, we're probably going to lose them. And that's an interesting paradox to be in in ministry. This is what Paul is presenting here. As he has false accusations, I mean, think about how you have responded to any kind of... Have have any of you ever been lied about? I would assume that all of you in some place have been lied about. That some false accusation has been given against you. And I'm sure that many of, not all of you, multiple times have given false accusations about others. As I have. 
It's not an easy thing to receive when you find out that someone has said something false to you. Paul's not focused on just defending himself for his own pride or for his own namesake, but that he is focused on telling them the truth that even at the risk of sometimes seeming like he is agreeing with their lies. So he is both giving a defense saying, I'm not bringing blasphemy upon these particular things that you're saying that I'm speaking against. I'm actually glorifying them in my proclamation. But your way of understanding glory and blasphemy are skewed, so you're going to probably see that this is just condemning me even more. And we see that's what happened to Jesus every time he would proclaim himself for who he is. They would say, see, there, we have enough, right there. His own words condemn him. This is the calling of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So we are to try to find ways to connect, but we are also to anticipate that we will not be received. Here Paul basically bides some time in the proclamation of, I mean, or in the providence of the Lord's ministry for him. He's not going to die at this particular moment. He's going to have a new audience. And the amazing thing is that he is telling the Jews that Jesus wants me to go to the Gentiles. And it's because of their rejection of this. Now, within just a few moments, his new audience are Gentiles. (laughs) He's preaching before the Gentiles. It's, It's almost like he's playing out He said, this is what Jesus told me is to go to the Gentiles. Well, we hate that. We're going to kill you. And then immediately he's proclaiming the gospel before the Gentiles. He's continuing to have them both as an audience. And now he has an opportunity to connect with them. And it's going to be through that process that will get him to more and more Gentiles to preach the gospel. This gravitas is deadly. It is a gravitas that kills. This ministry of the gospel kills. It's going to kill. It has to kill. As we receive that rock, as we recognize who the rock is, and then we are faced with the question, what shall we do, Lord? It's going to kill something. It's going to kill either our scales of understanding of what is just and what is right, or it's going to kill... Or in addition to that, it's going to kill our fleshly lives, our hard hearts. It is a deadly gravitas. And as we are receiving Jesus and it destroys the things that are going to be destroyed, we are actually to be thankful. Because the more we are attached to those things that are set for destruction, the more closely we are those who are also set for destruction. The only way to be free of that particular judgment is to be free from that defilement of the things that are placed before God in judgment. So yes, Paul is presenting this to them and saying, my whole life turned upside down and was destroyed by this rock. And if you all would receive it too, it's going to destroy all the things that you hold to also. That's not an easy thing to sell. As we come to this table, this table has gravitas. It has weight. It has worth and value. But it is a table that is one who presents to us life and salvation, but it is also a table of death. It is reminding us 
that something had to die or we would all die. Jesus had to die. The one who did not deserve condemnation had to die or we would die. So we see death being presented in the bread and in the wine. But we also have the warning that if we take this table unworthily, if we do not assume upon ourselves that we must die to ourselves to come to this table, we may die ourselves. It's a warning to us that there is judgment attached to this, that either you are truly holding on to Christ in dying to self, or the one that you are supposing to hold on to will bring destruction to the things that you're still holding tightly to. Something has to die. This gravitas will kill something. And for those who come to this table in repentance and faith, those who realize that they need to die to themselves, that we are truly hearing who Jesus is and what he requires, then all we have to hold on to and hope in is the life of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we come to this table today, remember, who is Jesus? And what does he require? Realize the cost to make this table being presented for us today. But also the cost that when you come to this table, that your old life must die. But your new life may end in death. Paul lost his position in earthly life, but was willing to sacrifice his physical life for this eternal life that is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So do not come to it flippantly. Come to it with gratitude and humility, but come to it also in celebration. That we have Jesus. We have the Messiah. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this weight, this weighty truth, this weighty gospel. We thank you that it is this gospel that kills us from death that kills our lives that are destined for death and judgment and then guarantees for us eternal life. But Father, we pray also that as we come from this presentation of the word and then also as we will leave from this table, that you will feed us, that we would not fear even our physical lives or our standings or our reputation or anything for the ministry of Jesus Christ. That we would take great delight in the calling of suffering. That we would take great delight that you will fulfill your promises of the furthering of your kingdom, even if we do not get to see it in our own eyes before us. Help us, Father, to have faith, to come to you in repentance and faith, and to minister with repentance and faith and having hope and joy that we will have and we do have the redemption of Jesus Christ. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us thank the Lord.